It's been more than a week since massive earthquakes hit southern Turkey and northwestern Syria. By Tuesday, the death toll had surpassed 41,000 people. And as far as we know, this may well be one of the worst affected places in Syria by the earthquake. Louisa Lovelock has been covering the devastation from Syria. And standing in front of what was a home, as you can see, they're trying to pull a young boy from the rubble. They say there's a child in there, they don't know if he's alive or dead. But the problem is they don't have the equipment to do it. They have these diggers, they're rudimentary. People have apparently died in the rescue effort even as they survived for days because these are just too crude to get them out. Rescue teams there have been working for days to try to find survivors. There are also teams searching in Turkey. So today we visited the town of Adyaman, which is in southeast Turkey. And it looks completely destroyed. Karim Fahim is the Middle East bureau chief for The Post. He's been covering the disaster from Turkey, where so far, more than 8,000 survivors have been rescued from beneath the rubble. There's a lot of heavy machinery in the town today cleaning up some of this debris because in many places the rescue effort is over. Um, It's been too long or unfortunately bodies have been retrieved from the rubble. You know, it's a mix of this sort of horrific destruction, people trying to find shelter, tent cities popping up around town, and an army of responders, rescue workers, people doing construction tasks, people delivering food all over the city. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Elahe Izadi. It's Tuesday, February 14th. Today, what the earthquakes in Turkey and Syria left behind. Kareem updates us on the latest rescue efforts and explains why so many people in Turkey are angry at their government in the wake of this disaster. Last time we talked about this 7.8 magnitude earthquake on Post Reports, it was with one of our colleagues, Sarah Dedouche, and it had just struck at that point. I'm wondering, can you tell us what has happened over the course of the past week since this earthquake first hit the region? Obviously, a lot has happened. There has been, you know, this awful revelation of the scope of the destruction of the wide area that's been impacted of the staggering death toll. You mentioned Sarah. On the day of the quake, she I think she messaged me at sort of 4.20 in the morning because she felt it in Lebanon. It was felt as far away as Egypt, I believe. And a couple of hours after I communicated with her, we were on a flight down to the southeast of Turkey to, you know, one of the towns sort of near several of the the sort of badly affected areas. And the impact was immediate. You know, people on our flight were sobbing. A man who was sitting next to us on the flight told us he had basically lost his entire family, including his grandchildren. And this was just a couple of hours. I mean, it was sort of early afternoon, the day of the earthquake. And so we had sort of an immediate sense of 
this awful toll. And over the next few days, we toured several towns in southern and southeastern Turkey. And, you know, in those first days, there were people just digging through the rubble of their homes, trying to find survivors. By Wednesday, you were starting to see the movement of, you know, the kind of heavy machinery that could aid in this rescue effort. But it all took some time. I mean, I think that partly has to do with how wide an area was affected by this. The other thing that happened when we flew down here was the, you know, we were in the middle of, you know, what seemed like a winter storm across the whole country. It was delaying flights out of Istanbul, which is where we left from. And when we landed, it was freezing and raining here. And that's the sort of reality that the people in the debris of the buildings were dealing with and their rescuers were dealing with. So it was really one of the most awful things I've seen just in terms of both the destruction and the hopelessness of the situation in those early days. Kareem, can you tell us more about how the rescue effort in the days following the immediate aftermath in Turkey went. What kinds of rescues were people able to to do? And I'm wondering right now, like it's it's a race against the clock, right? Do you know how much longer authorities are going to be able to keep looking for survivors? Well, they're still looking, which surprised me, you know, because it's more than a week later. And in the town we visited today, we were told that they had rescued I think at least two people, uh, including one just a few minutes ago. So it continues in places. But when I left the region on Friday, there were, you know, these groups of rescuers. If you were in a town where there collapsed buildings, every couple of buildings, you would see rescuers on sort of one out of every three or four of those buildings. In Adyaman, which is where we were last week and this week, there were these large contingents of foreign rescue teams as well. So, you know, we spent some time with a team from Algeria. Um, There were Spanish rescuers. There were Tunisians. So they were all involved in this. And then, of course, there were the, the Turkish teams as well. Today, when we were out there, we didn't see anywhere near that amount of activity. And for the most part, it was rubble clearing that was going on. A decision, I guess, had been made that there was no one left to save in some of these large buildings. And so they're They were just trying to get debris off the road so that other sort of relief supplies could get into the town. Kareem, I'm also wondering what life is like for people who are survivors in those regions. How are they able to, you know, find drinking water and food? And and also, how has the earthquake disrupted life in other parts of Turkey? You know, for most of last week, it was absolutely miserable for them. I think the first day we saw large deliveries of tents was on Wednesday, so sort of two days after the earthquake. People in devastated cities, 
beyond in places that were not as badly affected, but felt aftershocks and were concerned about the safety of their buildings. We're all sleeping in cars, so everywhere you drove around the region, you would see, you know, in the morning, people waking up and getting out of their cars, stuffed with very large families or whoever. People said they were sort of living in between buildings. I mean, they were just grabbing shelter sort of wherever they could. And then there were the beginnings of this sort of distribution of government aid that began to happen. And at first it was really pretty chaotic. Trucks would show up in the center of town and tents would be sort of thrown off the trucks and people would get into fights over these supplies. Other trucks would show up with pallets of water bottles and those would get distributed. And there's this enormous sort of volunteer effort in Turkey as well, which has augmented the government response and helped with some of the shortfall. And so you have trucks all over this region with sort of these custom printed signs sort of strung to the front of the trucks saying where they're coming from with earthquake relief. And it's from every part of the country. And then, you know, I was away for a couple of days and going out today, we saw much more sort of organized tent encampments for people with signs on the highway showing where people needed to go. There's still people in their cars. People still don't know when they're going to be able to go back into buildings. They still haven't been inspected. And so the other thing that's happened over the last week is this huge exodus from the region. I mean, all the flights out of the local airports are for free now. So when we left on Friday, the airport was packed with people just trying to get on these flights and going to stay with relatives or whoever in other parts of the country that weren't affected. After the break, Kareem explains how corruption in Turkey may have played a role in the devastation and the challenges of getting humanitarian aid to Syria. We'll be right back. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. In the immediate hours after this earthquake, everyone's energy was logically focused on finding survivors and saving lives. And now when we look at the death toll, I'm wondering what new information has come out in the last week about why this earthquake was especially so deadly in Turkey. There is still a lack of hard information. There are a lot of accusations and criticism and people saying that the government had been warned about this kind of thing for quite a long time. And a number of policies, you know, including this sort of encouragement by the government of a construction boom, officials being accused of looking the other way when developers, 
built quickly using shoddy construction techniques. Another policy which allowed for amnesties for fines for people who were violating codes that required certain kind of construction to accommodate for earthquakes. All of these things are being sort of talked about now. And, you know, we don't know exactly why it was so deadly, but there are starting to be clues as people go back and look at some of the developments that collapsed. The government has started prosecuting some developers, including some who were apparently trying to flee the country. And so that seems to be recognition that poor construction played some large part in this. But the question everyone's asking now is how far up into the government these kinds of prosecutions or accountability will go because these are all private developers. We haven't seen any sort of government officials being prosecuted for avoiding fining somebody for for flaunting their earthquake codes. So there's quite a lot of anger about this. There's quite a lot of anger also about the rescue response. And when we were out today, that's what we heard the most about. You know, people complaining that for a day or two after their building collapsed, they were alone. They and their neighbors were the ones trying to dig out their relatives from these buildings. And people from the government's disaster relief agency would show up, but they didn't really have enough personnel to deal with all the buildings that had collapsed. Mm. I mean, the, the way the government is framing this, the earthquakes now, is that it's sort of a, you know, once in a century event. It was so big and so destructive that any government would have faltered in trying to, to save all these people. That's the suggestion. But people will be digging into what happened to these buildings, the records of the builders who approved, you know, some of these buildings. And that's already started to happen. Mm. Can you tell us more about what role international aid is playing in the rescue efforts in Turkey right now? How important are other countries to the rescue efforts and, and digging out of the devastation in Turkey? Well, I think especially in the sort of Days after the earthquake, sort of Wednesday and Thursday, when we started to see these teams arriving, they were very important. You know, we saw the Algerians save people from two large buildings and they were force multipliers for the rescue efforts. And some of the contingents were very large. The Pakistanis had like, I think, more than 50 people. The Algerians had more than 80 people. The U.S. sent... I believe two rescue teams, one based in Virginia and the other in Los Angeles. So there were dozens of countries sending that kind of help. And of course, all of this is in, you know, very stark contrast to what's happening in Syria, especially in the Northwest, where there has been a trickle of aid that also obviously needs to be highlighted. I would like to turn to northern Syria, which was also really hit hard. What can you tell us about rescue efforts there and specifically the role that international aid is able or not able to play there? Well, people in northern Syria after the quake 
were complaining that they were receiving none of the attention, none of the aid, none of the sort of, you know, high-profile rescue teams that Turkey was receiving, which is correct. And, you know, this is a long-standing problem in much of northern Syria because of Syria's civil war, because large parts of the area are held by rebel groups, it's fallen into this sort of limbo where other countries and the UN sort of determine how much aid gets through there. There's a limited number of crossings. Every six months, there's a debate at the UN about whether to keep crossings that aid passes through open. This has been going on for many years, and a disaster like this has just highlighted this sort of political limbo that the area is in. And so when it hit, one, the devastation was terrible because there are no earthquake codes in this part of the country. There's lots of temporary housing. You know, the pictures from the area were, you know, horrific and and showed this terrible devastation, concrete just crumbling. There's a rescue group that operates in the region, the White Helmets, but they were basically working on their own with no support from any international actors. Over the last couple of days, the United Nations, I believe they've said a a few dozen aid trucks have crossed the border delivering humanitarian relief. I think they said the other day that it was 52 trucks. And so that's something. And the Syrians in, in, in the Northwest are also complaining that despite the fact that Turkey has been an ally, it remains sort of subject to the whims of the Syrian government. And so when the Syrian government decides that aid can only cross through one crossing rather than all of those available, and there are several others available, that Turkey, because of the international system, defers to them. And so there's been a lot of criticism by Syrians in that part of the country of the UN you know, of Turkey at times, and just sort of general frustration at their situation. Mm. Yeah, it's like the existing geopolitical and political situation in each of these countries. It just complicates whatever efforts are required to recover from such devastation. Yeah. And, you know, this is a population that has been living with war for years and years, Every winter suffers a calamity because of the weather and um, sort of their already dire living conditions. So they're no stranger to this kind of thing. But this is obviously, you know, a crisis many times worse and exacerbated by these sort of existing disparities in, in the provision of aid. Karim, You've been out talking with people, seeing what's happened firsthand, the devastation. I'm wondering what is next in this recovery process in in Turkey and in both of these countries? And what are people hoping to see happen? Well, the government in Turkey has said that, you know, these cities will be rebuilt and that the people made homeless by the earthquakes will be housed either nearby or in other parts of the country. And that's all of that is a massive task. And when we were speaking to people over the last couple of days, 
there was this real skepticism that some of these cities would survive or be restored to the way they were, especially some of them will have already lost, you know, an enormous amount of buildings and will lose many more, probably because they're structurally compromised. And so they just really didn't see how people would remain in these towns. And maybe the government will be able to make good on its promise to, to quickly rebuild them. But this sort of quick rebuilding is seen as part of the problem that led to the you know, devastation we saw with the earthquake. And so, you know, there's still a reckoning to come on what kind of building Turkey should be doing. That's one of the questions that looms, how these people are going to live, work, be educated in the coming months and year. But for the most part, I think people are just still in shock. The TVs are on everywhere you go, sort of anywhere in the country, and people are just glued to them watching sort of multi-screen coverage of what's happening in every city. There's a real sort of deep sorrow everywhere and, and, and anger. And so the conversations about what happens next, I don't think have really happened yet. Karim, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Kareem Fahim is the Middle East Bureau Chief for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by Jordan Marie Smith. It was mixed by Sam Baer and edited by Lucy Perkins. Thanks also to Eliza Dennis. If you want more access to Kareem and Luisa's reporting, please consider subscribing to The Washington Post. It's a great way to support the work we do, including this crucial international on-the-ground reporting. Go to WashingtonPost.com slash subscribe. I'm Elahe Izadi. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen.